0: from WHYY in Philadelphia. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Dave Davies in for Terry Gross. Today, Weird Al Yankovic.
1: La 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 la
2: lasagna.
0: He talks about what made him weird and compares his life to the way he depicts his life in the new film, Weird, a satirical biopic which he co-wrote. It's a parody of a parodist. Yankovic's instrument is the accordion, and in the new film, playing accordion gives him the status of a guitar hero.
3: I'm just trying to bring sexy back to the accordion.
0: Also, author and L.A. Times columnist Steve Lopez confronts a tough question. Should he retire? He puts on his journalist's hat to tackle the question. He talks to geriatric experts, to people who've quit working and love it, and ageless wonders like Mel Brooks and Norman Lear who never will. And David B. And Cooley reviews the new Adams Family TV series spinoff called Wednesday. That's coming up on Fresh Air Weekend. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Dave Davies, in for Terry Gross. Terry has today's first interview. I'll let her introduce it.
4: My guest Al Yankovic, a.k.a. Weird Al Yankovic, is famous for his song parodies, for which he writes comic lyrics to hit songs. Beat it became eat it. My Sharona became my Bologna. Another one bites the dust was another one rides the bus. Like a virgin, like a surgeon. Riding, riding dirty, was transformed into white and nerdy. He's recorded a mashup of songs from Hamilton, polka-style. Yankovic's instrument is the accordion, not exactly a mainstay of rock bands or hip-hop. In keeping with his style of comedy, the new movie Weird, which he co-wrote, parodies music biopics, as well as action films and film noir, and offers an alternate version of his life. In the movie, playing accordion gives him the status of a guitar hero. Making up words to songs that already exist is considered a high calling, the work of a visionary. Artists, including Madonna, will do anything to get him to parody their songs, knowing their song will become a hit if Weird Al parodies it. He becomes so popular, he's asked to be the next James Bond. Daniel Radcliffe stars as Al Yankovic. Although Yankovic never achieved quite the status his character does in the film, he's been quite successful. He's the third music performer after Michael Jackson and Madonna to have a top 40 single in each decade since the 80s. He recently completed his tour, which he called the unfortunate return of his ridiculously self-indulgent, ill-advised vanity tour. You can see his new movie, Weird, streaming on Roku.com for free. Let's start with one of his early hits, which is also in the film. Here is Eat It. Welcome to Fresh Air. I laughed out loud during your movie.
3: Well, that's what I have to hear. Thank you so much.
4: So we just heard Eat It. Um, how did you decide to do that Michael Jackson song? Why did you choose that one? And I should mention this was the era where like music videos were really big and Michael Jackson's videos, including Beat It, were like huge at the time. And of course you did a video of Eat It too.
3: Well, uh, I mean, in 1983-84, Michael Jackson was the most popular human being in the universe. And, you know, the Beat It video was getting played a dozen times a day on MTV. And this was at a time when people were obsessed with MTV. It was a fairly new phenomenon. And people watched it continually. It was like video wallpaper. They just had it on in the house. And people were familiar with every little detail of that music video. So it was very easy to parody because people were already familiar with the source material. And all I had to do was tweak things just a little bit, just make it a little askew uh, to make it funny. So it was just, uh, frankly, just the obvious thing to do.
4: You really capture what some uh, music biopics are like and how they distort certain facts and The turning points that you have to have in a music biopic, in a lot of biopics, the parent doesn't want the child to go into music because it's too much of a gamble, or they think the child isn't really talented enough, or music is too frivolous, it's not real work, and it won't support you because you're not good enough. So in your parody of music biopics, when the young version of Al Yankovic gets interested in writing song parodies, his father thinks, like, that's ridiculous, that's terrible, he should work in the factory with the father. Um, I want to play a scene from Weird in which the father's been trying to convince him to work at the factory. And um, this is one of my favorite scenes in the movie. I just think it so captures <laughs> a trope <laughs> of uh, music biopics. So um, let's hear it. And uh, young Al Yankovic's mother speaks first. How old is Young Al in this scene,
3: maybe eight nine years old.
4: So here we go. So this is a scene with the mother, the father, and young Al. Alfie, aren't you going to ask your father how his day was? Um, how was your day, Dad? Well,
2: how was my day? We had another fatality down at the factory. Oh, we had a real grisly one this time. It was a McKinley kid this started last week. Kept telling him to stop messing around by that industrial shredder, but he just wouldn't listen. I would have reached out and grabbed him, but I already lost one hand to that cursed machine. Well, anyway, there's an opening down in the factory floor. Maybe I could pull a few strings and you could spend the summer working with your old man. How's that sound?
4: Um, no thank you.
2: No thank you. We're going to have to learn sooner or later that factory... The factory will make a man out of you.
4: But I don't want to work at the factory. I want to make songs.
2: What? You want to make songs? Did you hear that, Mary? we got a regular Bing Crosby on our hands, don't we? Nick, you're embarrassing him. Oh, am I? Why don't you sing us a little ditty, Bing, huh? Such a little songbird. Sing one for us.
4: Amazing grapes, how sweet the juice, it tastes so good to me. Stop it,
2: stop! What in God's name are you doing? Those aren't the right words. I know.
5: I made them better.
2: By changing the lyrics to a well-known song? No, boy, what you're doing is confusing and evil. My God and I will not have that kind of blasphemy in my own home. But, Dad... But God, what has gotten into you, Alfred? Hmm? With the songs and the crazy magazines. That is all going to stop now, young man.
4: Honey, I know it's hard to hear this, but your dad and I had a long talk, and we agreed it would be best for all of us if you just stop being who you are and doing the things you love. Every line in that scene is so funny. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Was Amazing Grapes written for the film, or did you actually write that as a kid?
3: No, no, that uh, was—I mean, I I certainly could have at some point, but uh, that was written for the film, yeah.
4: Your father worked in a factory like the father in the movie— and um, it was a steel factory. Did he make steel? Is that?
3: I believe it was a sheet metal manufacturing plant. But he was very blue collar. Worked in a, a lot of different random jobs over the years. But you know, it wasn't. It wasn't some oppressive factory as portrayed in the movie, of course.
4: Did he want you to work in the factory, or did he want you to have a diff- different kind of life?
3: No, I, I think. I think. Um, he, uh, he was glad that I was a nerdy kid. I was a smart child, uh, you know, valedictorian, straight A's and all that. And he was very proud of that. And he wanted me to do something where I could, you know, earn my living by thinking rather than, you know, by doing hard labor.
4: I love the mother and father's advice in this to the young Al, like, stop being who you are and doing the things you love. <laughs> uh, you know, because that's basically the advice people are given in the biopics. But um, what was your parents' reaction to you loving the things that you love like music parodies, Mad Magazine you know like silly and crazy jokes
3: I think they were very supportive I mean um, in the very beginning I think my mother was a little reluctant because she was extremely protective and uh, when I first started like knocking on doors and trying to get something going uh, with a recording career she was I have to say maybe a little apprehensive because uh she told me more than once that there are evil people in Hollywood and I should be very careful and she's not wrong, <laughs> but but she was just a, a little leery about me doing anything uh, involving show business. Um, but I was always very adult minded. It's not like I, I ran away to LA to become a rock star or anything like that. I, I went to college. I got my degree in architecture. Uh, I remained a fairly good student and I, I was was pretty adult minded and I I actually didn't quit my day job until I was on the billboard charts.
0: Al Yankovic speaking with Terry Gross. His new movie, Weird, is a satirical biopic about his life, which he co-wrote. We'll hear more of their conversation after a break. I'm Dave Davies, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. Let's get back to Terry's interview with Al Yankovic, who's famous for his song parodies of hit records. His new movie, Weird, is a parody of biopics using a totally fictionalized version of Al Yankovic's life.
4: In biopics, in music biopics, there's always something that the songwriter sees or hears that makes them, like, stop dead in their tracks and think, wait, 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 that's a song! (laughs) And then they write a song. (laughs) And you have a take on that. In the movie, you know, Al is uh, in college at this time, and um, one of his uh, roommates puts on the radio, and My Sharona is playing. And Al opens the refrigerator to make a sandwich, and there's really nothing in it except some bologna, which belongs to his roommate. And the roommate says, you can have my bologna. And Al stops and thinks, oh, that's a song. (laughs) And and next thing, like he writes, my bologna to the melody of my Sharona. Um, So has that ever happened to you, that a song kind of came to you based on something that you were experiencing in that moment.
3: It happens pretty rarely. I mean, that, that's the thing with almost all of the biopics, musical biopics, is um, they want to show the moment of epiphany, like, where did this idea come from? And usually the, the truth of the matter is it's not a cinematic moment. You know, it's, it's something very <laughs> internal exactly. yeah, uh, yeah. for the songwriter, which you can't really show on the big screen that well. Uh, so a lot of times it's fabricated for the sake of the movie. And obviously we take that trope and we exaggerate it. And, and most songwriters, I think, will tell you that they don't have any kind of, like, like Eureka moments, uh, like is shown in so many biopics.
4: Okay, so here's my Bologna. This is Weird Al Yankovic. That's My Bologna, one of the songs that's included in the new movie Weird, which is a parody biopic of parodist Weird Al Yankovic's life. And it's streaming for free on the Roku channel dot com. So, you know, after that song comes to you, your roommate says, I don't know if that comes from God or the devil, but the world needs to hear it. That's also another trope from biopics and of, like, rock and roll movies in general. Like, is this the devil's music or anything pertaining to the blues? (laughs) Is this like the devil's music or or is it great, you know? um, So as a parodist and as an accordion player, did you feel outside of that whole world of, like, this is the devil's music or, you know, like rock and roll unleashes all these like wild feelings, <laughs> you know, or, or like <laughs> or gangster rap. Maybe it's dangerous. Like you were so in a different world, even as a child, like playing accordion, you just weren't a part of like like the danger and sexual thrill that like pop and rock was supposed to be and rhythm and blues and soul music.
3: Yeah, accordion music was always considered extremely safe to the point of being corny. Uh, it was, it was uh, pe- people thought of the Lawrence Welk Show uh, and Myron Florin, and it didn't have a very hip reputation uh, in the 60s, which is when I started taking my accordion lessons. Um, and yeah, and there, there was humor to be gleaned from the juxtaposition of, of accordion music and rock and roll uh, because they, they just felt like such disparate genres, you know. Um, and, uh, and, and I toyed with the whole satanic thing uh, a couple times because I used uh, some backwards masking in some of my songs. Uh, just because at, uh, at the time people were all up in arms like, oh, he said something backwards on this song. That must be satanic. And my messages <laughs> were always things like, wow, you must have an awful lot of free time on your hands. Or Satan <laughs> eats cheese whiz. you know. <laughs> so I, I always had a little bit of fun with that, but uh, as far as I can tell there was nothing actually satanic in my music
4: um accordion is is i think a great instrument um and if you listen to like you know zydeco or polka or things like the three penny opera or like some avant-garde jazz um tango like accordion is just like a mainstay of that and it's really such an interesting instrument what did you learn when you were taking accordion lessons like what did you grow up on
3: When I started taking lessons, and again, this would have been ages 7 to 10, uh, it was mostly polkas and uh, waltzes and, you know, various classical pieces, a lot of public domain stuff. Um, They didn't teach you Iron Butterfly on the accordion. (laughs) You know, rock and roll wasn't something that was part of the daily lesson. Uh, So I got a little bit bored after age 10 and decided I would just kind of learn on my own. So I learned to play by ear uh, a lot of rock and roll songs on the accordion. And getting back to what you said, yeah, it's the accordion uh, is actually a a beautiful instrument it's a very sensual instrument and a lot of uh, indie bands have discovered that in the last couple of decades and incorporating it into their arrangements and instrumentation Um, and uh, even back in the 50s uh, with Dick Cantino I mean he was kind of a sex symbol playing the accordion back then so um, you know I'm just trying to bring, bring sexy back to the accordion
4: What did people think of you? What did your contemporaries think of you when you were a kid and when you were a teenager playing accordion?
3: it was uh, hard to join my friends' rock bands because <laughs> when I was uh, in my early teens, you know, that was my goal. Was like, oh, I just want to jam with some, you know, like-minded musicians. Let's, you know, let's play some rock and roll. And for some reason, nobody wanted to uh, have an accordion player in their band. And that's one of the few things in the biopic <laughs> that's actually true because Daniel Radcliffe, as me, uh, just cannot seem to fit in anywhere in mainstream with with, with rock bands. Um but yeah, so I, I figured out that I, I just kinda had to go my own direction and just follow my own muse if I wanted to have any kind of career whatsoever.
4: And that was parodies? I mean, did you ever try just like playing songs that you liked on accordion and trying to create your own band?
3: My my, my brain sort of uh uh deviated into comedy because it was it was hard for me to take playing the accordion seriously, because if you, if you play the accordion seriously, then, you know, you're playing, you know, Italian weddings and bar mitzvahs and things like that. And I was obsessed with the Dr. Demento show, and I loved all the funny music on that. And Dr. Demento uh, loved my accordion playing because he said uh, the reason he played me on the air was because I was this teenage kid playing the accordion thinking I was cool. And that was, that was a pretty novel concept back, back in the early 70s.
4: Did you think you were cool?
3: Well, not as such. I mean, I knew I was a nerd. I, I knew I was uh, a dork. I, I didn't really fit in at school or with my friends. I was, you know, eating lunch by myself at the lunch tables a lot. So I, I didn't think I was a social butterfly or a big man on campus. I was, you know, I was a nerd. And this is back before being a nerd was considered cool. Like nowadays, people like, oh, I've always been a nerd or like they brag about their nerd cred. And when I was in high school, that was not a thing you, <laughs> you bragged about.
4: Who nicknamed you weird?
3: uh i'm not entirely sure i know that nickname was given to me in my uh dorms in my freshman year in college uh it, it was a nickname that i think a couple of people were, were calling me because uh they found me to be weird you know i i did not fit in and they just thought i was just like strange guy wandering the halls of the dorm and they'd say oh there goes weird al and, uh, you know, again, it was, it, it was kind of derogatory at the time, but I decided to take it on professionally uh, when I started doing college radio because everybody on the air needed some kind of wacky nickname. And I thought, oh, I've already got a wacky nickname. It's Weird Al. So it was the Weird Al show every Saturday night. And uh, it, just, uh, it just stuck.
4: I'm wondering what it was like for you when hip-hop came along and gangster rap because there's a, it's a very popular form of music... But um, it would be somewhere between problematic and offensive to a lot of people if, you know, a white musician was parodying black songs, you know, songs by black artists. Um, So I can see how you dealt with that looking at your music. But can you talk about that a little bit about the challenges that presented to you and how you went about dealing with them?
3: Yeah, I can understand why some people might think that that's problematic, but I think the fact that I respect the music so much uh, goes a long way towards, you know, making people feel better, about rather, because you know, I'm not making fun of rap music or hip-hop music. Uh, I'm, I'm really taking pains to, to emulate. Uh, the sound and the intonations and in fact you know i got a lot of nice compliments like from chameleon Air when i did white and nerdy he was really impressed by my rapping skills uh, so i think the fact that i'm not like like being like white guy doing rap music ha ha that's not the joke uh i'm just using the music uh to do my comedy like i have for any other music i've ever done in my life uh, and I, lo- I love doing rap music for a number of reasons, one of which being that there are a lot of words to play with, uh, because for a lot of pop songs uh, it 's limiting because it 's either repetitive or there aren 't that many syllables and I have to be very concise in my humor and-, and jokes because I only have you know a finite amount of space to 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 be funny in but in rap music. There are a lot of words, and uh, and it just opens it up and, and gives me more breathing room. So that's one of the reasons why I've always enjoyed doing doing the rap songs.
4: Well, I want to play White and Nerdy, and this is a parody, as you said, of Air's Riding. And um, the lyrics originally are about how the cops are trying to catch him riding dirty, riding with weapons or drugs. And so White and Nerdy is like a nerdy white guy talking about you know mowing his lawn and th- <laughs> things like that. So do you want to say anything about your approach to parroting this specific song? Well,
3: this is one of my favorite songs, uh, not only because uh, it was my, my highest selling song and my only platinum single, and my only top 10 single, but uh, I didn't have to do any research whatsoever because I spent my whole life doing research to write white and nerdy. So it came very <laughs> easily to me.
4: Okay, let's hear it. This is El Yankovic. See me
3: roll on my segue. Oh, in my heart they think I'm You know I collect There's The pins in my pocket I must protect them My ergonomic keyboard Never leaves me bored Shopping online for deals On some writable media I edit Wikipedia I remember Holy Grail really well I can recite it right now And have you R-O-T-F-L-O-L I got a business doing websites, websites. While my friends need some code Who do they call? I do HTML for them all Even made a homepage for my doll Yo, I got myself a fanny pack They were having a sale Down at the Gap In my nights With a roll of bubble wrap Pop, pop, hope no one sees me Getting freaky I'm nerdy, the extreme And wider than sour cream I was in a V-club and glee club and even the chess team only question i ever thought was hard what do i like kirk or do i like picard spend every weekend at the renaissance fair got my name on my
4: underwear that's weird al yankovic and his recording white and nerdy it's been such a pleasure to talk with you um thank you for your music thank you for the new film and i wish you well
3: well thank you so much it was a
0: pleasure thank you Al Yankovic co-wrote the new satirical biopic, Weird, which is an imaginary version of his own life. It's streaming for free on Roku.com. New Yorker cartoonist Charles Adams began drawing his gloomy illustrations about a family of ghoulish misfits in the 1930s and continued drawing them until his death in 1988. In the 1960s, ABC presented The Addams Family, a delightful TV series about those characters for which the cartoonist finally gave them names, Gomez, Morticia, and their young children, Pugsley and Wednesday. Spinoff movies followed in the 90s, in which Christina Ricci was introduced as Wednesday. And now Netflix has launched a TV series spinoff called Wednesday, with a former Disney Channel star in the title role, Our TV critic David Bianculli loves it. Here's his review. In 2016, Jenna Ortega starred as Harley, the
1: fourth of seven children in a Disney Channel sitcom called Stuck in the Middle. It was a sort of Disney-fied, female-centric version of Malcolm in the Middle, with young Jenna introducing her character by breaking the fourth wall and speaking directly to the camera.
4: This is what happens when there are seven kids and you're stuck in the middle. If my family was
5: a week... How'd be Wednesday?
1: Well now, only six years later, Jenna Ortega is Wednesday, playing Wednesday Adams, the eternally glum Adams family daughter, in a new Netflix series where her character is now front and center. This new adaptation is created and the premiere episode written by Alfred Goff and Miles Miller. Their last adaptation of a well-known comic was the long-running Superman origin series Smallville. For Wednesday they've assembled a team that does justice to the movie versions, the original TV series, and even the New Yorker drawings. The theme music is by Danny Elfman. Many of the eight episodes provided for preview, including the premiere, are directed by Tim Burton. The look and tone of the series is perfect, and so is its dry, dark sense of humor. And appearing as Gomez and Marticia are Louise Guzman and Catherine Zeta-Jones. In this early scene, they're riding in the family hearse, driving a reluctant Wednesday, played by Jenna Ortega, to the exclusive, unusual boarding school they once attended. Hmm. I promise you, my little viper, you will
2: love Nevermore. Won't you, Tish? Of course you will. It's the perfect school for her.
4: Why? Because it was the perfect school for you? I have no interest in following in your footsteps, becoming captain of the fencing team. Queen of the Dark Prom, president of the Seance Society. I merely meant that finally you will be among peers who understand you. Maybe you'll even make some friends.
2: Nevermore is like no other boarding school. It's a magical place. It's where my true mother and we found in love.
4: You guys are making me nauseous. Not in a good way. Darling, we aren't the ones who got you expelled. That boy's
5: family was going to file attempted murder charges. How would that have looked on your record?
4: Terrible. Everyone would know I failed to get the job done.
1: Ortega is just great as Wednesday. Droll and deadpan, and about as far from a Disney Channel performance as you can get. She's like a goth Lisa Simpson with her own defiantly individual character quirks. She rejects cell phones, listens to music on a Victrola, plays the cello for solace, and writes poetry on a manual typewriter. When she's paired with a roommate who's all smiles and pastel colors, they make for an odd couple indeed. Luckily, there's a self-labeled dorm mom who tries to make Wednesday feel more welcome, Miss Thornhill. And she's played by none other than Christina Ricci, the Wednesday from the 1990s movies.
4: I'm Miss Thornhill, your dorm mom. Apologies I wasn't here to greet you when you arrived. I trust Enid has given you the old never more welcome. She's been smothering me with hospitality. I hope to return the favor in her sleep. Well, here's a little welcome gift from my conservatory. I try to match the right flower to each of my girls. And when I read your personal statement in your application, I immediately thought of this one. a Black Dahlia. Oh, you know it? Of course. It's named after my favorite unsolved murder.
1: Murder, as it turns out, forms the spine of this first season of Wednesday. Bodies begin piling up, there's a monster on the loose, and Wednesday is on the case like a dressed-in-black Nancy Drew. Prime suspects include the school administrator, played by Gwendolyn Christie from Game of Thrones. Miss Thornhill shows up in later episodes, as do Gomez and Morticia. Thing and Lurch are here, too. And before it's over, Uncle Fester pops in, portrayed with goofy playfulness by Fred Armisen. Tim Burton and the other directors attack each episode with a respectful visual flair. This new Wednesday from Netflix fits right in with all the other entertaining versions that have come before. The characters and settings and subplots are just what you hoped they'd be. In the spirit of the classic TV theme song, I give Wednesday two finger snaps up. <laughs>
0: David Biancooley is a professor of television studies at Rowan University in New Jersey. He reviewed the new Adams Family TV series spinoff called Wednesday. Coming up, journalist Steve Lopez asks the question should he retire? I'm Dave Davies, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. My guest, Steve Lopez, is someone I've known casually for many years because when I was a political reporter in Philadelphia in the 80s and 90s, Lopez was the star columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer. He was known for crafting compelling human interest stories, shining a light on unfairness and inequality, and skewering politicians with clever nicknames that stuck to them for years. In 2001, he took his talents to Los Angeles, where he became a local institution writing columns for the L.A. Times. He's won a host of awards and written several books, including The Soloist, about his relationship with a sometimes homeless, Juilliard-trained musician afflicted with schizophrenia. It was made into a film with Robert Downey Jr. playing Lopez. Lopez's latest book is about whether he should give all that up and just quit, retire. It's a big decision and a tough one, so Lopez decided to make it a reporting project. He interviewed a host of experts and lots of people who have retired. Some love it, some don't, as well as some who never will because they love and are energized by their work. And because it's Los Angeles, some of them are famous, such as Mel Brooks and Norman Lear. Lopez takes us on the journey and shares his decision in the book titled Independence Day, what I learned about retirement from some who've done it and some who never will. Steve Lopez, welcome back to Fresh Air. Hey, so good to be with you. You know, a lot of people have many jobs that are a real grind, and when they hit their 60s, they can't wait to retire. Um, You know, you have a pretty good job, (laughs) Uh, you know, doing what you do, and in the book you say how much you love it. What made you think about retiring?
5: Yeah, I do have a dream job. I feel so lucky, especially working in an industry that has lost thousands of jobs. I mean, you know, since I think just during the pandemic, 360 newspapers have closed in the United States. And so I I did not take lightly walking away from something that I've done for nearly half a century. But the fact that it's been nearly half a century is part of what uh, motivated me to to look into this, to think about whether it was time. I mean, uh, it's been a great run. It's been a privilege. It hasn't even felt all that much like work most of the time, but you start to think about how much time you have left and you start to think about the things that um, you know, you'd like to do or you wanted to, to test out to see if that's something you want to spend your time on. And I began worrying that I'd be one of those people and you hear about this all the time, somebody retires and a week later, they drop dead or, you know, who, who knows what physical or cognitive ailments might come my way, and I'd, and I'd never get a chance to do those other things. So before I made any decision, talked to a lot of people and, see, and go to school on their experiences.
0: You're in the business of researching subjects that you want to know more about, so you certainly found new experts, but you've talked to a lot of really interesting people over the years, and you went to people whose lives and opinions you respect. One of them was Father Greg Boyle, who is the founder of Homeboy Industries. He's worked with former gang members for decades to help them get started on new paths. Um, he's quite a, a remarkable person. He's been a guest on this program several times. You visited him. What did you observe? What did you learn?
5: Well, um, Father Greg is my age. Um, Father Greg is a local hero. He's a saint. Um, he redirects the lives of uh, Young men and women who have gotten into trouble um, related to the circumstances they've grown grown up in, they go to you know they end up in prison and after prison, um, they knock on his door to try to get some job training. Um, so I've known him for for many years, and I know that he loves his job. And I went to see him and told him that I had been thinking about retirement, and he gave me kind of a, a strange look. Like, why, you know, <laughs> why? And I said, there are things that uh, I think maybe I should try, and I've done this for a long time, and but I'm just not sure. I'm not sure whether I'll be fulfilled in retirement. And he said, life is about being connected to something, being connected to a loving God, um, feeling as though you're relevant, um, as though uh, you have a purpose. And he said that in his case, he never considered retiring, and he said to me, I'm a Jesuit. Jesuits retire in the graveyard. And that meant a lot to me, in part because I don't do what Father Greg does, but I think that social justice, economic justice has been a big part of what I've focused on. And I thought, boy, he's, he's going all the way to the end with this, and here I am walking away. I, I felt quite feeble after talking to Father Greg. <laughs> Um, You talked to Mel Brooks,
0: who is, what is he, 96, mid-90s, I think, right? Um, Yeah,
5: mid-90s. And keeps doing what he's doing. Uh,
0: What did you hear from him?
5: Well, I wanted to talk to uh, Mel Brooks and Norman Lear, who just turned 100. Because they were in their 90s doing creative work and – not slowing down. Now, these are exceptional cases. Of course, these are Hollywood legends and maybe they can never really escape who they are. Um their their identity is pretty much set. But I did have this concern um I don't know that you could call what I do terribly creative, but you do stare at a blank screen and you've got to you've got to figure out what to fill it up with. And and I wondered if for people like Mel Brooks and for Norman Lear Um, work is oxygen, and and when you stop, you suffocate. And is that what's keeping them going, and is that how I'm going to be? Am I going to, you know, um, have the going-away party and retire and then just, you know, start gasping, trying to figure out what I could find that's more fulfilling than what I've done? And Mel Brooks, you know, asked me a lot of (laughs) questions. Uh, sort of became my life coach, and in the end, he said, um, "Well, you like to write, you like working for the LA Times." Uh, he said he read my column; that was flattering. He said, "But you want to, you want to, you know, you want to live in Barcelona. You want to do something else? Why not go to the editors of the LA Times and say, look, I want to keep doing this, but not so much.' <laughs> Why don't you get the best of both worlds?" And of course, it was pretty good advice and uh, pretty close to what I ended up doing.
0: I think both Mel Brooks and Norman Lear looked at what you did and said, you know what, you may think you're going to stop doing it, but your brain is 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 going to keep working the way it always works. And in fact, you described going on a little vacation to Laguna Beach, I think, with your wife and happening upon somebody there and thinking, this will be a great column, and you ended
5: up working it. <laughs> I do wonder if I'm wired, if, if, if there is no escaping this. And- I think I want to find out. I think I want to, for a time in my life, maybe do nothing. I mean, planning is great, and it's important to figure out how you're going to be relevant and matter to somebody. But I've never been able to slow down enough to just clear my head entirely, and that's something I might like to do. What Mel Brooks said was that he's motivated still, and it's as simple as that. And Norman Lear, more the philosopher, said that life is about... You're in a hammock he said you're swinging between what's over and what's next and if something tugs at you something motivates you you get up out of bed because an idea is just burning and you've got to get to the computer and start writing then that's life you don't need to think beyond that it's you know his philosophy of living in the moment is great for a lot of people and i took that to heart but you know i'm not independently wealthy and i need i needed to make some choices and so um i wasn't so sure that uh that i didn't want to completely break away from what i've been doing
0: you know it's interesting i've known a lot of people who had jobs that they liked some in journalism who you know took a buyout offer from the newspaper they were working for because you know it was a good chance to get a little head start into a, a retirement or or a new life But they figured, I'm going to keep working. I'm going to freelance for this place and that place. And then I would run into them six or eight months later. And they would discover, actually, I like spending time with my spouse and having days that I can do what I want. When you were around, you talked to a lot of different people. Did you find people
5: who said, actually, yeah, stopping work was great? I had some pen pals at a retirement community, and I asked them if I could write a guest column for their newspaper. Um, And they said, sure. So I wrote it and I said— For the retirement homes Newsletter? Yes, yes. (laughs) Yeah. And and I wrote it and said, I'm thinking of retiring. I'd like to go to school on your experiences. Please share any wisdom that you've got. And it was across the board. It was um, isolation and depression— it was. Um, I wished. Uh, you know, this has been so great. It's been better than I than I ever would have imagined. And these are people who had been, you know, healthcare administrators. And there was one woman who was a a, a law clerk who so looked forward to her retirement that um, she she looked. You know, they they threw her a big going away party on a Friday, and she drives home. And I'm free. I'm free. Free at last. Independence Day, and. Saturday has a good day, Sunday's pretty good, Monday wakes up with nothing to do. And by the end of the first week of her retirement, called her boss and said, I think I made a big mistake, can I go back to work? So you've got those people, and also from that retirement community. I had trouble getting hold of a woman who one day finally picked up, and she was on her boat off the coast of California. And she said that they had just, she and her husband had just bumped into a fishing boat, and the fisherman offered her some of the fresh catch, and she said, it's almost cocktail hour, and then we're going to grill the fish on this boat. And she said to me, do not wait. Do not wait until you're too old to do these things. Retire today. So I got it, you know, across the board from those with regrets and those who wish they'd done it sooner.
0: Yeah, helps if you can afford a boat, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you spoke to an analyst um, and a rabbi, and it seems like they gave you sort of parallel advice. What did you hear from them?
5: You know, both of them, I still hear their advice echoing for me. One thing that the rabbi, uh, Naomi Levy, said to me was um, that, you know, um, she had a guy who came to her. He was a member of her congregation, and um, he said that he was really struggling. He was kind of okay Monday through Friday, you know, go to work and, um, you know, get up the next day and do it again. And then on weekends, he just felt kind of lost. And the more she talked to him, the more she realized, and he realized, that he needs structure. And there was no structure in his life on the weekends. And she said, people under underval- underestimate what structure can mean she also had this great advice which was and I've and I've taken this to heart she said it's a good idea if you can carve out the time with an extra week of vacation or a month of vacation or a sabbatical to test the dream you have all of these people thinking about retirement and they tell you what they're gonna do they're gonna learn how to fly an airplane um, they're gonna you know learn how to uh, knit rugs um, or they're gonna whatever it is, and then they finally get there and, and, and realize I don't really care that much for this, or I'm afraid of flying, and you know, and I'm 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 tired of knitting rugs. And she said it's a good idea if you can to sample the dream. And and one of my dreams has been to get my dusty guitar out of the garage and start playing it again. And I've played, uh, thanks to Rabbi Naomi Levy, every day, averaging about an hour a day for a year. And so I'm sampling the dream. You talk to a lot of experts, people you knew, people you didn't know.
0: But there are those two people that are really important. I mean your wife, Allison, and your daughter, Caroline. One of the things you write that they both said is uh,
5: you need more friends. They write – (laughs) <laughs> and can I add, they're not very nice about this when they say <laughs> no, it, it to sounded me. rather sternly
0: spoken. Actually, yeah,
5: no, it's like, what's the matter with you? You know, don't you know how to socialize? And does nobody like you? That's that's how it comes off to me. You know, that's part of what this was about for me. There are things I've missed in life because I was working too hard. You know, I, I've sacrificed friendships, and I've also moved around a lot in my job which which meant that you had to start all over building those uh those friendships and they're right i mean i do need to socialize more but i think that it's hard to develop that um when when you're uh, doing the kind of work that i do which is you, you got to keep thinking it's like i wake up in the middle of the night still thinking did i blow that column that's about to run <laughs> and what am i going to do next to redeem myself so I, my my head has been so caught up with work that it's kept me from developing um, and holding on to friendships. And that's something that I really do want to work on as I find that I've got you know more leisure time. I, so Allison and Caroline are right. I need more friends. Anybody available? <laughs> <laughs> I think there would be a lot of people available. You know, it's, as I hear you describe that, it
0: strikes me if anybody has the kind of job that would enable you to make social connections. It's you. I mean, you... You know, you don't just write columns about important people and elected officials and corporate leaders. You you talk to talk to people. I mean people that who are not who are not bold faced names all the time and lots of people love your work and would love to hang with you. Um and and I get you know I, you and I don't know each other well, but I've always you know there was a way in which you don't maybe you're not so terribly approachable, I don't know.
5: <laughs> people think because of the cage rattling columns <clears throat> that I've written, the uh, that I'm—I don't know—maybe I'm a tougher character than I really am. I'm kind of just a softy. I, I think that everything that I've experienced in life has been about what is the column here, and I think it's it's gotten in the way of me developing uh, friendships with people who I really uh, respect and admire and would want to be friends with. It's just that my relationships with people have been about work. And maybe that's my fault, that I haven't been able to step away and keep my work life separate from my my private life. And maybe that's what Allison and Caroline are getting to. i got to work on making friends.
0: Your wife, Allison, is a freelance writer. She works at home, and she's a few years younger than you. She's got an active career going. And, you know, you've made it clear she doesn't want you hanging around at her elbow all day. Um, your daughter had a kind of a more colorful way of describing the prospect of the two of you t- together in the house. Do you want to share that.
5: <laughs> I think Caroline's words were you'll kill each other when when I first told her what what did she think about me retiring and you know being in the house there um more hours each day. You'll kill each other. Um she was kidding of course, but um uh, you do have to I think in, in many cases find your own lives. Even if Allison were were retired and and didn't have things to do while I was sitting there retired, you know, wondering when she could, you know, when we could go and do this together. I, I, Allison said something, like, I'm not going to be your play date buddy. I'm not going to be your, you know. <laughs> so figure it out. Find some things to do. That's a big adjustment for a lot of people. A lot of people, when I was researching this book, had those issues. The day is now a clean slate. You don't have to be somewhere from 9 to 5 and then worry about what you did from 9 to 5, from 6 to midnight, and wonder if you did okay and what you're going to do next. So I do think that these are the kinds of little adjustments that every retiree faces. Okay, what now? Everything is different.
0: Well, Steve Lopez, uh, good luck in winding down. Um, Thanks for speaking with us again.
5: Thank you so much.
0: I really enjoyed it. Steve Lopez is a columnist for the Los Angeles Times. His new book about considering retirement is Independence Day, what I learned about retirement from some who've done it and some who never will. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Salat, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shorock, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, and Marie Baldonado. Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C. V. Nesper. For Terry Gross, I'm Dave Davies.